We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. Let's turn again together to the book of Colossians. We're in chapter 3 this morning, Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. As we continue our study through the book of Colossians, we've titled this series, The Supremacy of Christ. And I have given it the title this morning of some advice I heard a long, long time ago. Um, and it repeated itself um, my first year in seminary. I can remember being in seminary and I was taking my, my first classes and, and the, the first semester of my first year of seminary, I, I signed up for an introduction to preaching class. Um, and we had a guest lecturer who came in and he was talking about finding your voice, what it looks like to find your own voice in preaching. And he said something that really stuck with me. He said, if you ever listen to a, a young guy preach, especially in his first few sermons or when he's first getting after it, most of the time he is going to sound like he is copying someone else. And that's because as somebody's trying to find their own voice, they listen to certain preachers or heard certain preachers, and whether they mean to do it or not, they are copying that a little bit and he actually said he said there's nothing wrong with that you're trying to figure out how to do it on your own but one of the goals you should have is to learn to be who you are in other words God made all of us different he didn't give all of us the same voice he didn't give us all the same personality he didn't give us all the same mind he gave us all differences and so God created us not only as a pastor who preaches but he created all of us to be who we are. So the first thing that we need to know is, who are we? So instead of trying to pretend, we talk to high school students and college students about this all the time, instead of trying to wear a mask, instead of trying to be something you're not, you need to know who you are so that you can be who you are. So it helps us as believers to know, number one, our identity. And then once we know our identity, we know how we are to act because we know who we are. And we discover that in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Let's stand together as we continue to read. You'll remember that Paul has transitioned now and we are in the very practical section. We moved from the first two chapters that were highly doctrinal to now we are in this very practical side of this letter to the Colossian church. Chapter 3, verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Lord, teach us today that because you have given us a righteous identity, Lord, you expect righteous behavior. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please be seated this morning? So first off, but before we get to the righteous behavior, you see in the big idea this morning that God has given us a righteous identity, and because of that, he expects righteous behavior. And we're going to spend the majority of our time today talking about, as this text does, what it is that God expects of us because of who we are, how then should we behave? We should act. We should think like who we are. But who are we? Look with me at verse 12. Number one, it says, therefore, as God's chosen people. 
You were chosen by God. You were elected by God before the foundations of the world. The Bible tells us that we love why? Because He first loved us. It is an amazing thing. It's not, an, it's not a reason for pride. It's a reason for humility before the Lord to recognize that He looked down through the corridors of time and praised God. We know that we were chosen by the Holy One, the one that we sang to this morning. And now, because we are chosen, one of the things that I know in my identity, on my worst day, on a day when I'm struggling with issues and self-esteem or depression and anxiety, above everything else, I stand as a chosen child of God. That's my identity. Number two, I'm not only chosen, this is in one verse, but it says not only am I chosen, but it says that I am holy, which means that we are set apart, that we are different. We hear sometimes the church called saints, and sometimes that makes some of us nervous. You think, well, I'm no saint. The Bible says if you've been chosen by God that you are a saint, that you're set apart, that you have a new identity, and that identity is in Christ, and that it is holy. And so you are now have been made holy, not because of who you are, but why? Because of who He is. So the Bible says you're chosen, the Bible says you're holy, and then this beautiful, beautiful description, you are also dearly loved, dearly loved. You are objects of God's special love. The greatest thing that any preacher could ever tell you is this statement, God loves you. The greatest theological truth you will ever uncover. Some of you may be all the way back stuck on that word chosen. There is a greater phrase here in this first verse than even the word chosen, and that is the phrase dearly loved. Because the greatest theological point I've ever learned in my whole life, I learned when I was three. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. What is the greatest theological, absolute greatest theological truth you will ever know is that you are loved, dearly loved by God. So that's your identity. That's your identity, and we find that just in verse 12. But because God has given you this identity, He has said now it's time to be who you are. Because you have this identity, He expects righteous behavior. And then we see this list. And I want us to go through this list together because it's not that you are trying to do these things so that you can earn favor with God. It's not that you are trying to do these things to show yourself approved. It's because you have been chosen. It's because you have been made holy. It's because of the fact that you are dearly loved by God that now you have the capacity to be who you are and who you are are people that should exhibit the qualities that we just read together. If you're taking notes, it's really simple this morning. We're just going to break these down one at a time and talk about them. We're going to spend a little bit more time on one of these aspects than we are on the rest because I, I, think it, I think it's necessary. But the first that you see there is the word compassion. Compassion. Now, when we hear the word compassion, we don't think anything about it. You think, well, sure, as a Christian, I need to be compassionate. But in the first century, that was a radical idea. I want you to just know how much Christian, when we hear the word compassion, how much Christianity has changed the world in 2,000 years. Because when Paul wrote this, the idea of compassion, especially to certain individuals, was not even considered. They, there was no compassion to the sick. There was no compassion to the elderly. There was no 
compassion to special needs or those that were mentally challenged. There was no compassion towards those who were slaves. There was no compassion even towards women. And so when you look at these huge blocks of people and you ask, what has done more in the world? We hear so much about justice and individual rights. And yet, it seems like we have ignored the fact that the greatest movement in all of history that has given dignity to human beings is Christianity. Compassion is the very thing that was taught in the first century, and it was revolutionary because this wasn't something that people would have nodded like a lot of you are. Oh, yeah, be compassionate. People would look at that and say, no. And compassion and kindness, the next word that you see, they go hand in hand. If you think about kindness... I don't think that we have to really belabor the point that the world we live in is not kind by nature. It is harsh by nature. A fallen world is harsh. People are harsh. So when we talk about compassion and we talk about kindness, we're talking about something that's not only cross-cultural, it's something that's very different for your own life as well. Because outside of Jesus Christ, you're not compassionate. You're not kind. Those are things that come because God has transformed you. Now, if you're going to be who you are, you're not only going to be compassionate, you're going to be kind, but then the Bible says that you're going to be humble. You see that word humility? Humility. Do you know that in the ancient world that they did not have a word for humility? In the first century, that, that any word that was used that would connote humility, that that was a negative term. It actually took Christianity in the first century to elevate humility to a virtue. Humility was not seen as a virtue that anyone would want to have. And we need to understand, I think, what humility is because we have a real false sense of what Christian humility is. Most people think that Christian humility is simply, and a lot of what we see is false humility anyway, but they think that it's some form of groveling servility or making yourself think poorly of yourself, or saying negative things about yourself, and that has nothing to do with what humility is. All humility is, is the absence of self-exaltation. It is the absence of self-exaltation. It's not thinking you're dumb. It's not thinking you're unable. It's not thinking you're awful. It's the absence of self-exaltation. So when people say, I need to be more humble, there is a proven way to have more humility. Exalt God and exalt other people. If you spend your time exalting Christ, what will happen is you will have a proper view of yourself, not a low view of yourself, a proper view of yourself because you will recognize His grandeur, His splendor, His majesty, and you will recognize your neediness, your weakness, your dependence. You cannot exalt God and then be conceited at the same time. You cannot exalt God and then not experience humility. And it's not only the Lord, but if I make it my business to not only exalt the Lord, but to exalt the people around me, to encourage the people around me, to be someone who lifts others up, then all of a sudden I don't have to be on the throne all the time. I don't have to be applauded all the time. And so in that, humility begins to increase, not just compassion, not just kindness, but then humility as well. And, and then the fourth one that is listed is this word that, that we need to be reminded of. Gentleness. Gentleness. What does it mean to be gentle? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean to be weak. 
gentleness and weakness are not synonyms. In fact, gentleness is probably better defined as power under control. This is someone who's willing to suffer rather than inflict harm. This is someone that has the good enough sense that when they talk to people, they understand that there is a way that you are supposed to approach people. They understand that, that absolutely that there are ways to get things done, and sometimes you have these people that are just, I'm going to tell the truth, I'll rip it off like a Band-Aid. Well, sometimes the Band-Aid doesn't need to be ripped off. Sometimes you don't need to use bleach as a cleaning solution when you recognize that it's an irritant and, and that it causes harm and, and that it, it absolutely eats away at the container. Sometimes gentleness is the humble recognition that there is a different way to go about some things to have the desired result that God wants to accomplish. So there's humility and gentleness, and then I wish we could skip this one. Do you ever have passages in the Bible that you go, and I'm telling you that I know God has a sense of humor because it is on the weeks that I struggle the most with certain things that those things come up in sermons. If you've ever taught, if you've ever been in a Bible study, if you've ever been called to sing a song, often it seems like you have got to be kidding. This week, I have to talk about patience. How many of you in here would consider yourself, I'm a patient person? Three or four hands? That's pretty impressive. Most of the rest of you, you can't raise your hand because of the people sitting beside you. Saw, there was one guy back there tried to raise his hand and his wife put it down. I saw you. Patience. What does patience look like? It looks like not losing yourself in angry outburst. It means a person that has a long fuse. It means a calmness. It means an ability not to fly off the handle. It means the ability to take things in stride. That's patience. You say, how do I develop that? I don't know if I'd pray for it if I were you. This is how God works on me. Maybe this will help you, I, I, I hope. But God has to constantly remind me of how irritating I have been. He has to constantly remind me of how patient he has had to be with me. He's had to constantly remind me of the amount of mercy needed on my soul in my life. He constantly reminds me of the amount of grace that he's applied to me. And sometimes it's embarrassing how unwilling to be patient with people I am when I recognize how patient God's been with me. I'm glad my God's got a long fuse, slow to anger and abounding in love, gentleness and patience. And then we're going to spend the majority of our time on this next word because it seems like every time this comes up in preaching, I get more comments, questions, emails, texts, people finding me in the hall because I think this is probably the one that we struggle with maybe more than anything. And yet, it is one of the most basic concepts of Christian living. And the word is forgiveness. Forgiveness. That we are, it says quite simply, that we would not have grievances against one another, but we would forgive how? As the Lord forgave you. So, if we're going to be who we are, 
who we are is forgiven. And if I am forgiven, that demands that I also forgive. So if Christ is now our model for that, according to what we just read, what we know is that forgiveness is not popular. And I want you to know that you, you may be a Christian. Maybe you're here today and you're saved and you're listening to this. And I think a lot of times people struggle because they hear a pastor say or they read in the Bible, you need to forgive as the Lord forgave you. And we think that because we're saved, that somehow that ought to be easy. Just because you're saved does not mean forgiving someone is going to be easy. It may be extremely difficult. It may take a lot of work and a lot of prayer, and it may have to happen over and over and over again. It's, it's not that because you struggle or because it's not easy that we're not called to do it. In fact, when we understand what it is that, that God is calling us to, he recognizes that then and now bitterness is what is rampant, not forgiveness. And so we ask the question, and let me just lay this out there before we go any further. Can you really search your heart today and just say, there is some forgiveness that I need to offer someone? I know we run away from this because a lot of times we hear it, we either compartmentalize, sometimes we justify, well, maybe, but, la, 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 la. I don't want to deal with that right now. I'm just asking you to be honest. Is there someone in your life right now that you maybe hold a grudge against, that it's been difficult for you, that you have some animosity towards, someone that you need to forgive? Now, when Jesus was asked by the disciples, how many times did he say that they should forgive? Seventy times seven. High school students, what's 70 times 7? Do the math on that for me. I'm, it's too early. It's 490. 490. Now, if you're literal like I am, because sometimes I can, I, I mean, I can take a passage like that and go 490. But when they hit 491, I'm done with them. So what is 490? That is not an exact mathematical number. That is Jesus saying, you forgive as many times as it takes. And it's not a one-time act. I think I've shared this with you before, but it's probably worth sharing with you again. Here's where I have struggled. A lot in my own Christian life, I have struggled with the doctrine of forgiveness. And here is why. I have been convicted in my life over about certain people and certain things that I needed to forgive genuinely convicted know the person knew the act that i needed to forgive and i've had those moments like a lot of you have had where i feel like i have brought it to the altar whether that's the literal altar of the church and knelt down and and placed them before the lord and, and offered forgiveness and asked the lord's help to do it uh, that, that that has happened but here's what also happens to me i can forgive you on sunday and hate you on tuesday Now, you can look at me as crazy as you want to, but you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's not that your forgiveness was not genuine. It's that we want to have these, because we, we've heard it our whole life, come lay it at the altar. And I truly believe that for a lot of people, you're not being a hypocrite. You literally are laying it at the altar. The problem is, is that you come back to the altar and pick it back up again. 
And so the seven times 70 is something that we have to continually do. It may be because somebody continues to offend us, or it may be that they only offended us one time, but we have to forgive them 490 times for the same thing because we've forgiven them, and we've got to keep forgiving them. And, and when we grasp that, it's the most freeing thing, but yet th there are so many people that say, I can't do it. I can't forgive such and such. Yes, you can. To say I can't is to say I won't. The reason I know you can is because if I thought it was up to you and your strength and your power, I would agree with you 100%. You might as well quit because you're going to fail. But I believe that the power of the gospel in you is greater than your own flesh. And I believe that the Holy Spirit's power in you is greater than your own power to be able to do that on your own. And I also believe that we're a people who believe the Bible. So we believe that we can do what the Bible says we can do. And so let's go to the Lord's Prayer. When we are praying before the Lord, I just want you to complete this with me. Forgive us our debts or trespasses as we do what? Forgive those who trespass against us. I ran into something a long time ago reading on the Lord's Prayer Augustine said this. This disturbed me. He said, if you pray the Lord's Prayer while refusing to forgive, you could be pronouncing a curse on yourself. And this is how he phrases it. Since I have not forgiven my brother, please don't forgive me. That's the converse of the Lord's Prayer. None of us would be comfortable with that. In fact, to even utter that kind of gives you a, gives you a little bit of pause. It, it, it may not set well in, in our stomachs. But what we know is that the lack of forgiveness, it disrupts our fellowship with God. Do you know that it affects health? It, it actually is one of the, even more so than diet, can affect heart health, blood pressure, blood sugar. It grieves the Holy Spirit. It hinders our prayers. It gives the devil a foothold in your life, and it enslaves you to the people that you hate. That's the craziest thing about it is the people that you refuse to forgive, the very ones that you don't want to have control over you, now they own you. They're in your mind, they're in your heart, and, and, and it's dangerous to your soul. So, Sometimes I know that, that we need just a, a little bit of a boost or a, a little bit of, a, of help because sometimes we wonder, well, do I need to forgive? Do I need to forgive someone? Well, let me ask you just a few real pointed questions. When you see or think of that person, are you still angry and resentful? Do you have a desire to see that person pay? Do you have a secret desire for revenge? Are you constantly telling other people about how that person hurt you? Now, I recognize, and I want to try to be as complete on this subject as I can, that when we talk about forgiveness, we aren't talking about whitewashing the past. That 
It's not that all of a sudden because you have forgiven somebody, you're now going to let that person back to abuse you again. It's not that you're going to ignore what they've done. It's not that you're going to be able to forget it. I've always told we just need to forgive and what? Good luck. Good luck. Maybe the Lord will allow that to happen. I pray He does. It hasn't happened for me. I can forget. Man, I, and this proves that we've, we're battling flesh. I can go to the grocery store and forget to buy orange juice. But if you have ever hurt me, I can remember it. I mean, incidences from elementary school. Isn't that weird? That's how our brain sometimes works and, and how we're wired. And, and so... We need to know that, that that secret desire sometimes to see somebody get theirs. Well, I'll be honest with you. If you've really forgiven, then you are okay with God being God and the humble recognition that God can handle that person better than you will ever handle them. When we say we are turning people over to God, it's God's business how God handles them but now it's not my business anymore to make sure that revenge is enacted, that I get my payback. I'm going to let God handle them. And in due time, I believe that the justice of God is even better than the justice of man. That's part of understanding forgiveness. It's not burying the hatchet, but leaving the handle sticking out. That's what Garth Brooks called it. That's when you say, well, we're, 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 we're past that. We're, we're just burying the hatchet. Well, a lot of people bury the hatchet till something else happens and they go dig the hatchet back up again, right? And, and we relive it. And, and, and let me tell you this, if you have forgiven someone, that one of the marks that maybe you haven't forgiven as well as we think we have is if you're constantly reminding the person that you forgave them. If you're telling other people about how you forgave them, you're still talking about how you were hurt before, it, it means that we're not willing to move past it. They did a, a, a study um, recently, and it helps us to understand that just how much weight unforgiveness actually puts on a person. Now, we know that we can't erase memories, but we can work consciously not to dwell on the past. Some researchers at Erasmus University did a test on people and on one group they it, they just was a blind test they didn't put any qualifications on it and they just had hundreds of survey participants jump and they measured how high they jumped on average it was about eight and a half inches then they took the next group of people and they told them to think about someone that they held a grudge against or someone that had hurt them in the past and then they asked them to jump. Do you know how far the average jumpers were when they thought about all that they, they had suffered in the past? They jumped 8.5 inches. It made three inches of physical difference in how high somebody could jump just the weight of thinking about the burden of forgiveness. It, we, we see that fleshed out all of the time in people's life because you would think if I hate you and we have a, a bad relationship and I haven't forgiven you that that's just affecting you and I. But you know that's not right because it affects your vertical relationship with God. But how many of you know it'll also poison every other relationship in your life? Forgiveness with one person has to be given so that then you can improve the rest of the relationships that are in your life. 
If I gave you right now, let, let's just say that back here behind the piano, I had a bag and I gave you $86,400 and you were able to leave with it. But, but on your way out to the parking lot, somebody kind of brushed by you and they grabbed $10 out of the $86,400 and they walked off with, with $10. So, would you absolutely forfeit the other $86,390? Or would you say, I hate that I lost that 10 bucks, but I've still got $86,390? I hope your response would be the latter. Do you know how many seconds you have in every day? 86,400. And some of you are wasting a pile of those because you are allowing people to steal the joy and the peace in your life because they have taken away the very thing in which we desire most, and that is a close communion with God, and it is simply because of forgiveness. I like what John Piper says. He, he, kinda, he takes his life. He talks specifically about he and his wife's relationship, and, and, and sometimes we need to look at the closest relationships we have because sometimes it's not people that we've cut off completely, right? Sometimes it's the people that we live with that we need to forgive. And, and he says this. He said he, he came to understand it a long time ago. And he said, you know, your life or even your marriage is like a big, green, beautiful cow pasture. And that as you're in the cow pasture, you recognize that you're walking through the cow pasture together. But if you're in a cow pasture, what do you find in a cow pasture besides cows? Cow patties, right. And what he says is that what he and his wife had to learn to do is there was no way that there weren't going to be cow patties in the pasture of life. But what you had to learn to do was to take those cow patties and to put them all in a pile. That's called a dung or a manure pile. And you shoveled it all into this manure pile. And then once you got it all in the manure pile, there may be times where you have to walk by that pile. But only a fool would set up their tent right beside the dung pile. Yet it seems like with a lot of us that need to offer forgiveness, we shovel it all into one spot and then where do we live? On top of the manure pile. And we just fester over it and smell it and talk about it and, and get it all over us. And you're going, this is disgusting. I agree. That's how we live. And eventually, it doesn't mean that, that, that you won't have to continually move stuff towards that pile, but you learn in wisdom to stay away from the pile. It's Veterans Weekend. We've recognized and thank you and can't say thank you enough to those of you that have served our country. There's uh, some students that are in our student ministry right now that are reading the book Unbroken. Some of you may have read that book by Laura Hildebrand. It's an incredible, incredible story if you haven't read it. But in this book, Unbroken, it recounts the amazing true story of a World War II veteran by the name of Louis Zamperini. On May 27, 1943, Zamperini's bomber left Oahu in search of survivors from a drowned plane. About 800 miles from the base, one of the engines cut out and the bomber plunged into the ocean. Zamperini and another soldier would stay afloat on a tiny life raft for 47 days, a world record for survival at sea. After confronting sharks, starvation, dementia, their real battle would begin. 
because Zamperini spent the next two years as a Japanese POW in the notorious Sugamu prison. In particular, a guard by the name of Watanabe, or nicknamed the Bird, ensured that Louis endured constant physical torture, verbal humiliation, all in an attempt to shatter the spirit of the American soldier. In 1944, after Louis had been declared dead, he returned to America in a rush of publicity. Unfortunately, his life quickly descended into a new self-made prison of alcoholism and bitterness. In particular, Louis now endured constant nightmares about his past and an obsessive drive to murder the bird. But the walls of addiction and hatred started to crumble. And in 1949, Louis Zamperini attended a Billy Graham crusade and heard the gospel and trusted Jesus Christ as his Savior. After receiving Christ, in the words of Laura Hildebrand, Louis thought of his history and what resonated with him now was not all that he had suffered, but the divine love that he believed had intervened to save him. He was not the worthless, broken, forsaken man that the bird had striven to make him. And in a single silent moment, his rage, his fear, his humiliation, his helplessness, they all had fallen away. And that morning, he believed he was a new creation in Christ. One year after trusting Christ, Zamperini returned to the Sugamu prison in Japan. He met with his former captors, all except the bird. When Lou was told that the bird had committed suicide, he felt something he had never felt for his captor before. With a shiver of amazement in his soul, he realized it was compassion. And at that moment, something shifted sweetly inside of him. It was forgiveness. Beautiful, effortless, complete. For Louis Zamperini, the war was over. Friends, I don't know what it is that you have to forgive, what it is that people have done to you, where it is that you have been, but God, by His grace, not only has He forgiven you, but He's also equipped you to offer forgiveness. But Paul says in Colossians that verse 14, over all these virtues, put on love. Love is the one virtue that unites all of the rest of these that we've talked about together. Without love, every other one of these virtues is nothing but sheer legalism. Now let's just talk action. Everything that I've just talked about, it would be easy. All of these would be easy if it weren't for people. If it weren't for people, we could do all of these and we'd do them really, really well. But the Christian life is meant to be done with people, with family, friends, with your church, with your community, with the people that you work with, with students that you go to school with and play ball with or in clubs with. Life's meant to be done with people. And newsflash, people are messy. People are messy. But what we also recognize is that people give us the opportunity to live out what Christ has done in us. And I praise God Almighty that it's not because of my strength of character, but it's because I am chosen, I am holy, and I am dearly loved because of the blood of Jesus Christ that he has given me the power 
to do what I could have never done on my own. I want to ask you today to look in deep inside your own hearts and your own lives and to be honest about these qualities that are listed in these few short verses. And maybe it is today you would bow your knee before the Lord. And you're saying, Lord, I've been here before, but I'm here now and I'm surrendering. I know that I'm not just surrendering now, but probably by this afternoon, I'm going to need to surrender again. And tomorrow I'm going to need to surrender again. But Lord, you know what I'm coming to you and I'm coming to you in purity of heart. Help me. God, I, I don't feel like I can do this on my own, but thank you, Jesus, I don't have to do it on my own. Thank you that you're going to equip me by your Holy Spirit to do what you're calling me to do. Friends, today I want you to know that if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, the greatest way to experience forgiveness is at the cross of Jesus. If you don't have a church family, you need people that are going to encourage you in every one of these virtues that we've talked about today. And First Baptist Summit would love to be that church for you. But maybe it is that you're here today and you are saved. Maybe you're already a church member. But even as you look now at that list, you just recognize that it almost now almost seems like one of them is jumping off the page. That there's something that seems like it's burning. And it's inside your heart. I want you to know that that's the Holy Spirit of God. And the conviction is there, not because God hates you, but because God loves you. And he wants greater for you. And he wants to conform you to the image of his son. So what now is the, qu the question now? is will you be courageous enough to be obedient to the call that God's placed on your life? Stand with me. Lord, we bow before you now thanking you that you have given us a righteous identity and recognizing that you expect righteous behavior. But Lord, we can't do it on our own, but we're so thankful, Lord, so thankful that we don't have to. So God, in this moment and in this place, you have provided clarity through your word Lord, you provide conviction through your Holy Spirit. Now I pray that obedience would fill this place. Let there not be an excuse that we could escape the reality that your commands on us are binding. And let us now, Lord, be courageous enough to let our yes be yes before you. So God, today I pray if there's someone who's never experienced the forgiveness of Christ, that they would run to salvation there's someone that needs a church home, that they would run to become a part of what God is doing here. And maybe there are those who either right where they are at the altar of God. Lord, your word has penetrated their heart and they recognize, Lord, that they need your help to be who they are and to be what you've called them to be. In Jesus' name, amen.